This episode is brought to you by ShipBob, the global leader in e-commerce fulfillment with locations across North America, Europe, and the United Kingdom. ShipBob offers direct integration to merchants running on Shopify, Wix, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, Amazon, eBay, and Walmart. And they are the only 3PL that is Shopify Plus certified. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 54 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Eliza Ganesh, the co-founder and CEO of Sunwink. Sunwink is a plant-powered wellness company that offers sparkling tonic beverages and powders filled with superfoods and super herbs. In this episode, Eliza shares with us her journey from teaching English to high schoolers, to working at General Mills, to being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, which led to brewing herbs in her kitchen in business school and sparked the idea for Sunwink. She talks with us about her quarter-life crisis, how her first sampling of products at stores didn't turn out as expected, and how each Sunwink product is inspired by a thought leader, with 2% of net sales going to a nonprofit organization of their choice. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Eliza. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building Sunwink. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. I'm excited to be here and enjoy some of this Sunwing drink. I am drinking Immunity Berry. Which flavor are you drinking? I'm drinking the Turmeric Recover. That one's Cheers. really good. I like that one a lot. Cheers. Yeah, Love it. it's good. It's got a kind of a savory vibe. Yeah, yours does. This one's a fruity one. We've got some goji berry uh, extract, hibiscus, elderberry juice, ginger, cinnamon. It's a really good mix. It tastes so good. Thanks for sending these over. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying them. <laughs> so let's get started um, from the beginning. Where are you from originally? Tell us about um, you know your childhood. Did you have siblings? What did your parents do? Sure. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Mainer. Um, I grew up in Maine. Uh, big big uh, out, outdoor kid. Grew up playing ice hockey. Um, I'm the oldest of three. Definitely an oldest child. Um, as in, what does that mean? I'm oldest too. So. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe show some traits. I'm bossy and probably a perfectionist and an overachiever. You know? Did you try to like play teacher with your siblings and you were always the teacher? Yeah, yeah, quite literally. Like we actually <laughs> would play teacher. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I was actually a high school English teacher as well. So there, there oh. must be something to that. Interesting. Um, I thought yeah. I wanted to be a teacher too, along like in third grade. And then I realized I wasn't really cut out for it. I, I, I just wanted to be in front of the room and like tell people what to do. And I realized <laughs> I could do that elsewhere. So I was like, oh, if I don't have to deal with kids, this is great. I'll do <laughs> <laughs> not for me. Yeah, it's um, it, it's honestly probably the hardest job I think I've ever had. Um, incredibly rewarding, and like you, you don't laugh. You never laugh more than when you're with kids. Like kids are just so fun and funny. But um, yeah, real real teaching is hard. Um, but yeah, I I grew up in Maine, and um, you know that was that was I think a big had a big impact on on kind of who I am. Like I said, I love the outdoors. Um. You know, Sunwink is obviously a company that is a lover of herbs and superfoods. And my mom was actually a massage therapist. And, um, you know, so so into, I think, the healing realm. Um, and that that had an influence on me. Um, you know, and another, I guess, another big influence, which really isn't necessarily tied to Maine, but my mom's mom, my grandma actually lived in Maine. And she is an amazing woman. Um, and she's a writer. She's written, um, you know, books and and taught college classes and things like that, and um, that had a really big impact on me as well. And and really, Sunwink. Um, I don't know if if you know this, but all of the Sunwink products are inspired by a real person. Yes, I saw that, and yeah. I was just wondering. And I know that I think it it also said that you know two percent of your revenues are also going to a charity chosen by this special person who has also inspired the drink. So can I can you tell me who inspired the immunity berry that I'm drinking right now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that is my friend Ching Ching from business school, um, and that's one of the original flavors. And then actually the the turmeric, um, which is another one of the original flavors, is inspired by my mother-in-law, Bhavani. Um, and, you know, I think, like, going back to my 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 grandma being this writer, like, I love stories. I think storytelling is really, really important. And I think in the land of plants and herbs, a lot of us have stories to tell. Um, and it felt really important to to have each product kind of have a story behind it, have a real person behind it. And then as a way of giving those people a voice, letting them choose an organization that they want to give to and 2% and of our net sales um, going to those organizations. So what we, organization is this, uh, the Berry one, Immunity Berry going to? What, what are yeah, they going to? So that's the Cure Alzheimer's fund. All right. um, and then my my mother-in-law, the turmeric one is actually the it's called the Sakai uh, for South Asian Women organization, and it's helping prevent domestic violence and things like that in South Asian women communities. So people go kind of different directions with with the give back, but it's kind of a cool way to bring whomever that person or whoever that person is, bring their voice and in, into the, the story. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And as we've gotten bigger, um, it's been less, you know, the people that I know directly and um, you know, we just launched powders and, um, we have the two powders that we have are both inspired kind of by people of influence and culture. And, um, you know, it, they sort of have a point of view at, that they're sharing and some like Sunwink feels like it's really important to highlight that point of view. It's awesome. So when going back to childhood as a kid, did you show any signs of entrepreneurship? Did you have a lemonade stand or, you know, what kind of early signs did you see? I, thought I, I had worse, you know, I, I didn't live, I lived 
kind of an, like a long dirt road, right. Where you would expect you would live in Maine. And I really wanted to be able to have a lemonade stand, but the speed limit was like 50 miles per hour. So I would drag my mom up like in March when it's like effectively still winter with my best friend. And we would try to sell, um, sell things at the top of the driveway as you know, trucks were going by. What kind of things? That's what's really embarrassing. Like we would write out on note cards, like the story of our lives and try to sell them for like 50 cents. Like as if felony were people interested. Yeah. My mom bought them. (laughs) I always loved like organizing people and getting things together. So, you know, outside of that, I was like, I liked to direct, you know, little plays and things like that. My grandmother, my other grandmother had a store. I worked at the counter selling candy. Um, you know, when I was like eight or nine, because I love cool. counting the change and selling Reese's yeah, stuff. I was always obsessed with fake money too, or, or that wasn't fake money, but I'm thinking monopoly money, you know, like I would always steal it from the game and I'd have it in my pockets or I'd get like, you know, those fake credit cards they used to put as placeholders and wallets at the mall. You know, totally. I'd like take those out and I'd pretend that they were real. Yeah. I loved playing anything kind of business. Like we had these fake laptops and I just liked fake typing on them, which is pretty silly, but like, I don't think I knew to call it business, but I liked running things. Like I wanted to be the president when I was five. That was my, like, I had this idea that I was going to be a leader. Um, I just didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool that you wanted to be president considering we haven't had any female presidents. So that kind of says a lot too, that you were like, you know, that doesn't bother you, but you're also probably really young, I guess, at the time. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So were you like president of your school or your class or like, did you run for treasurer? What kind of leadership roles did you have in school? In high school, like I, I was, I was definitely really involved. I, I, I was on sports teams. I was the captain of sports teams there. So I think that's probably a place it played out. Which um, sport did you play? I played soccer, ice hockey, and tennis. And, you know, I, I also really loved, um, I did, I guess I did a lot of volunteer and community work and that sort of continued on in college. Um, I got really interested in specifically education. Like I worked in college um, on this program where the college partnered with an alternative high school. so in um, Utica, New York. And we uh, brought the students on field trips to the college. Like some of them were academic focused, like they would meet with professors or some of them were, you know, just fun. Like we would play, we'd go swimming or we'd play basketball or things like that. Um, and I, I loved that. I loved working with kids, um, big believer in, in just like uh, working within the education system. And, and after college, I actually, my first, full-time job was working as a high school English teacher. Um, I was through the, the Teach for America program. I was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the, the work that I had done in college kind of led me to be interested in, in education for that reason. So is there any kind of takeaways from being, um, you know, a teacher and teaching high school English that has helped you as a founder? Yeah, it's so funny. Like for a long time, I I sort of felt like this this business side that I have, and then the the early teaching, the first job I had, really didn't have any connection. But with a lot of reflection, I actually think they're they're really linked. Like 
you know, one thing about being a teacher is, yeah, you're teaching a subject, but also the culture of your classroom is really important. Um, you know, much in the same way, like the culture of your organization is really important, you know, arguably a lot more than, than what you're, you're making and selling, like, you know, the people that make up that team and, and what it feels like to go to work every day are, I think a big, um, player in how, how successful you'd be. And I think it's the same thing with, teaching, you know, especially this was high school. Like I, I taught sophomores and seniors and like, especially seniors, these are adults effectively. And like how well they work together, how well they believe in, in working, um, you know, on their own education and like coming into your class, that, that whole environment is pretty important. Absolutely. I'm trying to think back to my teacher in high school and I'm like, all I can remember is a creative writing course in high school. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the writing. But English and creative writing is what I taught. And it's like, oh. you, you, um, you can teach really such cool things too, right? Because you can yeah. try to make it applicable to what people are interested in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember that was a pretty interesting class. So, you know, when, you, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, you're kind of, um, you wanted, well, you're a teacher. And so what kind of made you get into the next phase? Cause uh, it sounds like you, um, kind of jumped from there. So what made you switch things up and, and want to kind of stop teaching? Yeah. So teach for America is designed as a two-year program. And I thought about staying on as a teacher, but really what made me move on to the next thing was like, I was young and I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and I felt like I needed to gather a lot more, you know, experience to try to figure out where I, where I wanted to land. So I ended up doing kind of a 180 and going to work in a business setting for a company called McMaster car. It's an industrial supply distributor. So it sells like cap screws, right. You know, solenoid valves, like heavy industrial supplies. Um, and they had a management rotation program. So I had different stints in finance and operations and strategy. And I got to manage teams. Like by the time I left, I was managing a team of about 60 people. So it was incredible experience, one, in learning how a business runs and two, in incredible training um, from the management side as well, uh, which had a, had a really big impact on me too. I mean, managing 60 people is a lot and it sounds like you're pretty, you know, early on in your career days. So what are some of the takeaways you learned from managing people then that you have with you now? Yeah, I, I think, um, so the way the team was set up is there was, there was about six supervisors and then, you know, 55 staff. That was the team that I had. Um, and I think, one of the early things that I started to learn was like the importance of empowering, um, especially the leaders on your team. So in that case, the supervisors, but, um, it, you know, you, you as a leader, you can't do everything. And in a way you're only as good as the people around you. Um, and as soon as you can get out of your own way, especially if you have a tendency to be a perfectionist or an overachiever or someone that's used to like kind of doing it all yourself, like the more you can get out of your own way and really put strong people around you. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. 
ShipBob is a tech-enabled 3PL that offers simple, fast, and affordable fulfillment. Unlike most 3PLs that lack sophisticated intuitive tools and use outdated methods, ShipBob's technology is modern, intelligent, and designed to give you full transparency over your backend operations. Fulfillment is incredibly time-intensive, so just hand it over to the best of the best. With a network of fulfillment centers across the globe with new locations continuously underway, ShipBob lets you split inventory across locations to reduce shipping costs and transit times. Get your products picked, packed, and shipped, and earn $500 in free shipping credits by going to shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. That's shipbob.com slash stairway to CEO. Nasto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nasto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nasto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nasto.com slash stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Um, and empower them, um, the, you know, the better your team will be for it. So what are the, some of the things that you do to empower your team? Yeah. I mean, at, at Sunwing, I think, I, like, I think frankly, I mean, MasterCard, I was young, you know, so that learning was just taking shape. I think at Sunwing, that learning has been a lot more pronounced. Um, you know, especially we have a leadership team. It's my, my co-founder who's our head of marketing. We have a head of sales and a head of operations. Um, and so I think, a couple of things. Like one of the things that we did at the very beginning um, when we all came together is we did a user manual exercise. So um, you fill out, you, you know, you take this exercise home and it asks you questions like, you know, what's your work style? You know, like when are you kind of like when are you at your best or like when are you grumpy? Like are you a morning person? Are you an evening person? Um, how do you communicate with people? Like uh, what's your, what's your weak spot? Those kinds of questions. Um, and you do that, you write that on yourself. And then we all came together and effectively presented them to each other. And it's a really interesting thing as a way, I think, to launch your team, because you start to understand, I mean, all people are different, right. And it, and it kind of takes the heat off. Like if someone's really not a morning person to get that out in the air right away. Right. Or if, I'm managing someone that's like, I detest being micromanaged. Like I have to have work time where I don't talk to you for three days or else I'm going to go crazy, you know, to know those things right off the the bat. And then to have that user manual that you can go back and revisit as a way of understanding how people work and how you guys can collaborate best together. Um, I guess that that's one really helpful tactical thing that we did. That's pretty interesting. I haven't heard of the um, user manual exercise before, but that is a very interesting concept. And it takes a lot of awareness to kind of know that about yourself to say, here's all the things that I'm not good at, or here's where I'm, you know, when I operate the best, kind of have to have a lot of experience to know that about yourself. What were some of your, I guess, weak spots? Um, Are you a night person or a morning person? What were some of your answers? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I 
told my team is maybe this is coming across right now is I'm a pretty, um, like monotone speaker and like even keel in my emotions, you know, I talk slowly. Um, and it's been played back to me sometimes as like, I don't sound incredibly passionate. Mm. Um, or, and, and, you know, sometimes like it also won't translate and like, I'm stressed about something and how that can read to the team is like, what is she even happy about? Like how that, you know, like this amazing success that we've had or like, uh oh, like we're in trouble. Like, you know, is Eliza worried? Um, mm. And so, me sharing that with people, um, you know, and I work on it. Like, I I try to add more intonation to my voice. You know, it's something I'm working on from a from a voice standpoint. But explaining that to people, I think, helps because, you know, then they're not reading me, especially now that we're all in Zoom and being like, wow, like we had this amazing success, and Eliza's like seemingly, you know, pretty chill about it. Uh, <laughs> I feel like we're opposites on that one. I'm like through the roof, like passionate about stuff. And I talk really fast and I get really fiery really quick, you know, and I have to like try to tone it down to so I'm like normal, not some freak show. Um. <laughs> well, I love that. I, I love people like that. I mean, my, my, uh, my co-founder Jordan is, has amazing, like when she is passionate about something, it's like, it's almost worth like filming and recording her. Contagious, right? Yeah, it's so amazing to watch. Uh, (laughs) So we have a a balance there, I would say. It becomes very easily persuasive. Like you can persuade people pretty well with your passion when you're excited about things. Um, But I'm sure in fundraising, that was probably a little bit of a challenge too, right? Because I think a lot of investors um, look to hear that passion and that voice. I mean, I have a founder that I've spoken to before who struggled early in fundraising because she had a similar kind of um, you know, response and how she's communicated. Uh, I find that really interesting. Did you find that that was an issue at all in fundraising? Yeah, it's such a great, such a great question. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, especially because like you said, like in in the initial pitch, you're looking for this sort of wild excitement. Um, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, um, you know, as you're building longer term relationships with investors and things, sometimes like the even keel tone can also convey, um, you know, seriousness and focus. So there's, there's pluses and minuses, but one of the things that, uh, Jordan, my co-founder and I started to get good at and like initial pitches is we would sort of play off each other. right? Right. So like I would tee her up for the kind of the visionary passionate speech. And then, you know, when we get into like the nuts and bolts, like I would maybe come in and, you know, and and walk through it. Um, and that, that was an advantage. I think pitching is two people Mm -hmm. at, at least is often a lot easier than one. Absolutely. It must be. I mean, I was a solo founder and it was not easy. So, um, (laughs) and the friend that I'm referring to is also a solo founder. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, having the two different complementary skill sets and communication styles is definitely an advantage in that, in kind of the investor rooms. Um, but before we get too deep on the uh, fundraising side, um, you know, so you worked at this company where you were managing all these people, you, you know, had some great takeaways there. Um, what did you do after that? looks like you worked at General Mills for a little bit. How was that? Yeah. Well, I actually went to business school. Um, and then I interned at General Mills when I was at business school and, you know, basically the, the punchline was, um, I loved business. I, I loved 
that side, like the fast moving problem solving element of the master card, the car. And I just, I never fell in love with, uh, industrial supplies. So by going shocking. to business, That's yeah, so I, know. <laughs> I know. Um, so by going to business school, I really wanted to find a business opportunity as an operator that was in an industry I felt was, um, it was something I'd be passionate about. And I felt like had a real kind of, you know, there was a mission and a vision behind it. And I quickly stumbled on the food and beverage space because it was changing so fast. There's so many amazing companies and ideas that are coming out of it. I, I really think for the better, um, I went to internship at General Mills, you know, in between my two summers at business school because, um, you know, I got a lot of guidance. It would be great to have that, that experience of understanding how a big consumer packaged goods company works. Um, and actually, I was supposed to go work for a big consumer packaged goods company in the Bay Area, leaving business school, and then you know, I had what I call my kind of quarter life crisis, the last semester of school and ended up pulling the offer and deciding to do Sunwink instead. So what was this offer that you got? And tell us more about this crisis. <laughs> Everyone loves a good crisis. Um, yeah, so so I, you know, I was planning to move out to the Bay Area, I, you know, I had signed on the, the dotted line to go work at this company. Um, what and kind of company was it? A, a big CPG company, you know, I was going to mm. be in a your typical brand management role. Um, really, really great opportunity, but two things happened. One, I started really questioning whether going to work at a big consumer packaged goods company was going to be the sort of mission driven opportunity I was looking for. And I said, I was looking for in food. And then the second thing is I was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease. Um, and my sibling, Sasha, uh, is a clinical herbalist. And they started sending me herbal remedies and eventually took me to see an herbalist. And those two things hit about the same time and had a huge impact on me. One, because I was like, wow, this space of herbs and superfoods is amazing. Personally, I was loving it. I loved even just how, um, you know, herbalists approach seeing clients. It's like, they sit down with you for an hour and a half and they really listen to how you're doing. It felt very holistic and comprehensive. Um, and I also was feeling like, you know, I wasn't getting any younger and I needed to, to do what I actually said I wanted to do, which was work in food and beverage, but in a way that I felt like was really going to change something that was going to be, um, you know, mission driven. And so that's where, you know, the beginning of Sunwink and that, that concept started to emerge. So uh, did, when did the idea kind of come to you? When was that aha moment? Or did you start applying for jobs that maybe with brands that had a mission that you could connect with? Were you kind of sidelining both? No, once I decided I was going to do it, um, things started moving pretty quickly. So I, I, I mean, I was quite literally at business school in the second semester, um, going to herb stores, buying herbs in bulk and brewing them on the stovetop in like a communal dorm kitchen. Um, and you know, I, I knew that I wanted, like, I loved this idea of, of herbs and superfoods and making it easy for people to use them. And I was playing around with a lot of the herbs that I was using and I wanted to put it in a format that was like 
easy for people. That was delicious. Drinks seemed like a really easy way to do that. Um, ended up being a lot more complicated than I realized. But at the time, I was like, you know, how how hard can this be? It's you know, you add the, these effectively. They're tonics. They're teas. You put them in bottles um, and and bring them to market. Uh, and so, but where did the idea come from? Why not just tea? You know, because herbs are just in a little baggie and you put hot water and you've got a tea, right? Why didn't you go down the tea route maybe instead of like, what would really spark the idea? Yeah. I mean, I think the idea was I wanted them to be really potent. Like I wanted them to be um, something that like I would use for my own health. So for example, I don't know if you've had the the detox ginger, but yes, when I have, I, it's very good. So like I was going through this, this journey, um, on, on the autoimmune side and was looking for things to kind of detoxify my, my liver and help with my digestion. And I was using dandelion root and burdock root. And so when I made the detox ginger, like tonic is, is actually like a word in herbalism, um, that is used to describe herbs that are pretty safe for your body to use every single day. Um, and I think having an herbal tonic also kind of denoted like something that was more powerful, more potent. Um, so it, it needed to, it needed to convey to people that this was not just a tea, you know, this was something that was, was truly functional. Um, and there was a lot of power in these ingredients. Um, and so I think that's why I pushed outside of like, perhaps what had been done into thinking about like, you know, what could this look like? Um, and, and how do we call it something different? So people know some way that it, that it really is different. So you ended up calling it sparkling herbal tonic. No. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm reading the label. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, yeah. And it says real herbs for daily wellness. So you really did go on the kind of daily thing with the tonic touch. Yeah. And it's uh, got in that product has gone through an incredible amount of iteration, right? Like what it looked like when I first brought it to market in 2018. And it was just me like driving around San Francisco in a Honda fit, distributing it to grocery stores. That was a very different product than the product that you're drinking. I'm drinking, you know, that was launched in 2019. It went through a lot of a lot of learnings and iteration. So before we go and listen to all those learnings, because that sounds really interesting. Um, early on, you know, I guess with that first iteration, how, what was the formulation process like? You know, what was that timeline? And how did the branding and the name come to you? Can you kind of yeah. give us some insight on the first couple months? Yeah, so um, like I said, I, I had some concepts for some recipes. Um, I was drawing inspiration from the people that inspired the drinks, right? So I was at school with friends. Uh, CNM is a good friend of mine. She's the inspiration for the Detox Ginger, for example. So I was quite literally talking to her about herbs that she was using. Um, my mother-in-law, another example. So was was doing all this work, talking to these people, um, coming up with these these formulation concepts. And then I went out to San Francisco um, and was like, okay, I graduated. I was like, okay, I'm going to start this. Um, and so 
it was very scrappy at the beginning. I mean, it was like me doing most of the branding. Um, I, I had put in a little bit of my own money. Um, but the idea was just to get a, a product made at, in the smallest scale possible and then take it out to market in 2018 and see if it worked. And, and the reason for that was I got a lot of advice from investors and, and people that had done this before that beverage is incredibly competitive, food is incredibly competitive, and you need to test out your product kind of under the radar to make sure what you're doing is really going to stick before taking on a lot of capital, investing in an agency to, to brand it and, and going big, so to speak. Um, not everybody chooses to, to do that kind of test year. There's a lot of brands that launch big right away, right? They engage an agency, they do a pop-up, they get a lot of press and it's, it's big from the get-go. Um, and there's perhaps a lot of validity in doing it that way. The only thing that you don't get if you launch big from the beginning is it's harder to pivot and to make tweaks because you're kind of locked in, like you've made a big splash with what you are and it's harder to pull back and then change everything. And if I look at how much we changed over the course of 2018, I'm so glad we didn't launch with a big splash because I think it wouldn't have worked and we wouldn't be where we are today. That's super interesting and a really um, great perspective. I haven't heard that before. So I like that you say that you you tested the product under the radar. For any entrepreneurs that are tuning in wanting to maybe do the same thing, what does that really mean under the radar? Sounds like you were driving around in your Honda trying to sell to retailers. That's not so under the radar, right? So like, what were some things that you um, did maybe to keep it under wraps? And it sounds like you did maybe the branding yourself. Were you using the same name Sunwink back then? Was it something different? You know, can you help kind of paint the picture as to like what that testing phase was like under the radar? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it can't be totally secret, right? Like you got it. Like you're right. Like you, you're going to bring it to a store. It's not like it's not under the radar. But what yeah. it is is, um, you as the founder are saying are saying as close to the product and as close to the consumer as you possibly can. And you're really open to making a lot of changes, pivoting, um, to make sure that you're finding product market fit. So you're not, you're not wedded to anything that you think is going to stick if you're getting feedback from your consumers that it's not. Um, and that could be everything from the packaging to the formulation to like even your channel strategy. And I mean, I think the other thing is like we were we were really small, we didn't have a lot of funding, and so. Um, you know, in the beginning, that was a, another piece of this journey. Like we, we did everything on, on effectively a budget. So I'll give you a specific example. Like I would drive it to the grocery stores and I would try to pitch retailers and, uh, you know, the, the first product we had was shelf stable. And so they would put it on the shelf outside of the fridge. And I realized that was really hard because most people, if you want to go grab a single beverage, you're going to the fridge. So that was a, a really important learning. Um, another important learning was I did all the sampling for a time by myself. And so I would sit there in a store and hear a hundred people tell me their feedback on the product. And the first product, like I said, I wanted to make it a tonic and it was really medicinal. And I, like, I had people like spit the product out of my face. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was, 
Did they support the founder or no? You're like, you're like, no, I'm just a salesperson. I don't work. I'm not the founder. (laughs) Well, you know, it was interesting too. I, I told them I was the founder and people love to talk to founders. And so I got to pitch to, you know, a hundred people that wanted a sample. So I also got a lot smarter about figuring out what people wanted and what they didn't. Um, and all of those learnings led to a complete overhaul of the product, the packaging, a realization of what the channel strategy should be, who should be on the team. Um, so when we launched the product you and I are drinking today in 2019, I felt really confident about what we were putting out in the market. And we got that feedback. We got mm-hmm. into Whole Foods right away. Um, you know, and we've had a, been able to grow through the, the retail natural grocery channel. I was much smarter on how to pitch retailers. Um, I, I understood like who needed to come onto the team. And I, I don't think I would have known all that had I not given myself the space in the first year to test it. And when you say you got into Whole Foods right away, what does that mean? What kind of relationship were you building with Whole Foods or other retailers early on that helped you kind of get that early success? Yeah, so um, everything in retail takes an incredible amount of time. So the the category reviews, um, which is typically what retailers call it, like when they review a product, it's called a category review. Um, They only happen at best twice a year, sometimes like every other year, um, they review your product. Often you don't even get a meeting and then you find out a month, maybe later if you're going to get in. And then sometimes you're waiting six more months to get put on shelf. Um, so for us, we, we launched our, this kind of culmination of all the accumulation of all the things that we had learned, right. In that 2018 year, we launched the tonics you see today at this huge trade show, Expo West. Mm-hmm. And that was in March of 2019. And we were in Whole Foods in the Rocky Mountain region in July and Whole Foods in Northern California in September. And then we're in three more regions by the following spring. Um, and we're working with the global buyer. And that relationship took up time to foster, um, but it moved really quickly because I think we had honed in on, on what a really good product was and how do we really support it in store. What is a really good product? I think a really good product in beverage in, in this category has to really execute on three things. First, you have to drive trial, right? So like you look at a Sunwing bottle and it's going to capture your attention, right? It's blue. It's gorgeous. I love the branding. It's gorgeous. It's hard to miss. Like if you walk into a store, you're going to see this blue block, right? Mm -hmm. And you only get a second if that of the consumer's attention. So you have to grab it. So the, the packaging is, is often what drives people to trial that. And the fact that, you know, it says immunity barrier, detox ginger, and people look for those functions. The second thing though is you got to get that person to come back and you, no matter how beautiful your packaging is, if that product tasted horrible, like they're never going to buy it. again. And, you know, so that's the second thing, like it has to be a really enjoyable experience once trial has happened because you need the repeat purchase. And then I think the third thing is that deeper, more complex relationship with your consumer, which is 
what's the brand about? Like, what's the story you're telling? Like, is there a community there that if this person tries your product and loves it, they go online and they're looking at, you know, what does Sunwing stand for? How do they communicate with their community? Like, do they resonate with that? Um, that's more of the long game, right? Like that's deeper. Not everybody gets there, um, but it's really important, I think, in, in building a successful product and a successful brand. And when you said the first one, you said drive trial. That sounds like a very technical, I think, term for the industry. So what does that really mean for the listeners that aren't in the industry? Yeah, I mean, you want people to try your product, right? Um, you know, like test your, uh, speaking of food and beverage in, in retail, right? Or, um, you know, even like beauty, if you're if you're talking about Sephora, like walk down the aisles and like think about how many products are trying to grab at your attention? Like, how do you get somebody to try your product? So when you were doing all the testing, um, before you kind of rebranded, um, and, you know, went to the Expo West, what were some of those, you know, in the 2018 kind of testing era, what were some of the um, points that proved that you should keep going and keep doing this? You know, what were your measurements for success? That's a great question. Um, you're selling twice, right? You're selling to the retail buyers and you're selling to the consumers um, in the retail game. And um, the retail buyers can be really helpful because they see a lot of brands come through. And so they often are aware of what, what the trends are. And we got a lot of positive feedback about you know, this, the technical name for the category we're in is refrigerated functional beverages. And, you know, like they were like this category functional beverages is really growing. And for those, you know, those brands that are getting it right with their product, there's huge opportunity there. Um, I think that was a really strong signaling effect. I think despite the fact there were a lot of people that said, Hey, this is too strong you know, for that first, that first Sunwing product, people really liked what it was about. They're like, this is really cool that it's a, it's all built from these herbs and superfoods and it's low sugar, but like it's functional and powerful. Like the, the description of it, when I would pitch it would really like resonate with people. People were excited to try it. It's just that it tasted horrible. Right. So it was like, if I can get the taste better and if I can get the packaging better to grab people's attention to want to try to taste it, there's something about this category that I'm getting feedback on that people are really interested in. And functional. I've heard that word a lot, and I think a lot of other people have too. What does functional really mean to you? Yeah, it's so funny. It's like one of these industry words that gets thrown around all the time, and and then you're like, okay, well, what does that really mean? I think... Yeah. Um, I like to think about it like, is your food and, and your beverages, like, are they, are they working for you? Like, and I, I mean, like, not, are they fitting your life, but like, are they, are they additive? Like, are they working for your body? Are they giving you nutrition? Are they making you feel better? Like, I love French fries. Don't get me wrong, but like French fries just aren't functional, right? Like they're not, they're just, they're, they taste great functional foods, I think when they work really well are amazing and enjoyable, but like, they're also, they're giving something to you. They're like enhancing, um, 
you know, the nutritional value or like just making you feel better. Um, do you think that includes vitamins too? Or do you think that functional really is kind of an herbal perspective? Um, I mean, industry-wide, right? Like functional has a really broad terminology, mm -hmm. right? Like I think people will probably tell you it can include vitamins, which is fine. I think for Sunwink, what's really important, one of our pillars, our product pillars, which is really important is that all the ingredients in our products are based off of like whole foods, whole ingredients. Um, we think there's a lot of value in that. And so um, that's one of our brand pillars. And so when you pick up a Sunwing, one of the things I like is you could make this yourself. Like the recipe is almost on the ingredient list, right? Like you could go grab all these ingredients, you could brew them up on your, your stovetop, um, and you would have a, a tonic. Um, that's an important pillar for us as we try to keep, stick with this clean and whole food philosophy. But, um, you know, functional across the category in, in like a retail uh, data perspective is probably going to include, you know, adding like a vitamin C hit and things like that. And so what about the name Sunwink? How'd you come up with that? Yeah, it's, it's actually, um, it's two things. One, it's inspired by the street I grew up on. Um, so it's, it's a play on that word, but so you grew up on Sunwink street. I grew up on Spurwink. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was like, how do we, how do I bring something in, you know, kind of like my story into, yeah. the, into the name. Um, but the second thing is like, I'm a creative writing person. The word Sunwing to me evokes joy and cheerfulness. Um, and that's what I hope people take away from the product too. So I, I think there's kind of just like a feeling you get from the word. Yeah, definitely. I wish I grew up on some cool streets. I moved, <laughs> I moved like seven times, so I don't even remember half of them, but Old Coach Road is definitely not a cool brand name. So. You never know. It's kind of like a nostalgia <laughs> thing or something. So uh, fundraising, you just raised a round last year. Um, can you talk about your experience in the fundraising process and, and what that was like? Yeah. I mean, like we were talking about, I think it's incredible to have a co-founder through the process. Mm -hmm. Fundraising is hard. And, you know, it's no secret that women, especially women solo founded teams, so just women founders get, I think it's like 3% of a venture funding that's out there. Um, that's higher than when I was raising, it was two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and um, there's been moments where like, to, to be honest, like I've, I've heard that point blank, like I've had an experience where it's like a potential investor, you know, told me women teams weren't tough enough. Um, and so like- An you, investor said that to you? Yeah, yeah. And- Yeah, they say some crazy shit sometimes. <laughs> so- you should just um, be a recorder next time. Tell <laughs> it to the press. You know, and I think the thing that's crazy is like, it's like, that's what somebody said to your face. So like, what is the unconscious bias or what's said behind closed doors? Um, there's obviously a lot to overcome there. But that being said, we've also had people that have been incredibly supportive. I think the learnings, the things that I've learned in the process and continue to take with me are... Um, to really fight against undervaluing yourself. Um, it's really easy 
to get so overwhelmed to hear the hundred no's and, you know, to wonder if you're really worth it. Um, and the more you can fight against that feeling of doubt, it's really important. The second thing, which is just honestly, candidly more tactical is you don't have to answer every question. Um, and I, I try to explain this to people is like, I don't mean you need to be like rude or jerk. I mean, like if an investor asks you something and you're not ready to share that kind of information, you can say, I'm, I'm not comfortable sharing that right now. And that's okay. I, I felt a lot of pressure to prove my worthiness and like have all the right answers and answer every question to the fullest of my ability. And I don't think I took a lot of, I wasn't like owning my own power and saying like, I'm not ready to share that right now. Like, let me know if you're interested in the vision and the brand and the story. And like, then we can get into the, the deep details. There's a lot of pumping people for information. Um, and I got, I got very caught, you know, in the early days thinking like, here I was like sharing how awesome we were in all the numbers and, and everything. And I thought that I had to do that to kind of prove something. And I, I didn't. Um, how do you think that you can tell whether or not they're pumping you for information versus, you know, like what advice would you have so that founders out there know, okay, this investor is actually just trying to get information out of me, or they actually care about understanding the numbers and metrics around my business? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, frankly, in, in the first conversation, you know, it's hard to know you can trust your gut. But I mean, I think a watch out word is if someone tells you they're doing a research project for their fund on your category, right? And like, you know, they're studying it, like, that's like code for we're looking at another company. In this space. Yeah, like we're also Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so and, and it's not necessarily that people are bad in doing that, just, mm -hmm. you know, understand why they're talking to you. I think the best thing you can do is just pace out the conversations. If someone's really interested, you're going to have multiple conversations. You don't have to like share all the details in the first 10 minutes of the call, right? Um, the details should really start to come out in call two and call three, like there's, there's a buildup. And I think the other thing that we got really good advice on is you should be asking a lot of questions in the mm -hmm. first call. Like, yeah you should actually be asking, like if the call is 30 minutes, I try to ask questions for the first 25. Because one, you need to understand like, how big's the fund? Like how, mm -hmm. how far along are they deploying? Like, what's their check size? Do they like to lead? What round? Like, what are the milestones they want you to hit? And then the other amazing thing about investors is they see deals all the time. And so if you're thinking, philosophically about something in your industry, like ask them like, Hey, what do you think about after COVID the future of D to C and grocery, like have an intellectual conversation with them because they're seeing, they're seeing a lot and hopefully you'll learn a lot from talking to them. And then, you know, share your passionate brand story and be like, Hey, if you love to love, learn more, like set up another call. And so why do you think it's important to ask for the size of the fund? Because I think for, you know, founders that are raising for the first time, they don't even know what that means and why to even ask. And it almost sounds like a kind of like detailed question that you're not allowed to ask, <laughs> you know, like how much have you raised for your fund? How big is it? Um, but it's actually a very normal question. Why do you ask that? Uh, I ask that because um, I didn't used to ask that. And 
I had a couple of experiences where people were really, really interested. And then I found out like three conversations in that they hadn't even closed their fund yet, which, you know, shame on me, but you learn, you learn this way. Um, yeah. You know, and I think, but I think the, the really important questions also to not to skip over are, um, you know, what's your check size do you like to lead and what milestones, revenue, margins, um, I mean, there's, there's a number of things, but like what milestones are you looking for? Um, because you may run into or start talking to a fund you really, really love and you might be too early right now, but like they might be a great partner for series A or for series B. And so you might have a much better, more beneficial conversation for both of you. If you don't start diving into your numbers, unbeknownst to you, you're, you're way too early for them. Um, yeah you know, why not have a, why not have like a vision conversation and ask them questions about what they're seeing in the industry and learn from them and establish a rapport. That's, I feel like just a better use of everyone's time. It totally is. And you're, and you're absolutely right. I think founders don't ask enough questions early on and then they go through this whole pitch. It's exhausting. Maybe it's great practice. Good job. But still you leave the meeting thinking, well, that went really well. And then you get an email the next week. Hopefully like you get an email, not MIA on you, you know, but you'll get an email that's like, Oh, sorry, you're just a little too early or you don't have enough traction. You're like, what the hell just happened? I thought things went great. They seem so interested. And it's like, well, yeah, they actually just invest in series a or like you didn't hit the milestones that they look for or you know when it comes to the size of the fund you know maybe they have to return so much money back to their investors that they'll just never really invest in your category like yep. straight up you do not have the product that you're in or the category you're in is just not going to have the return multiple that the fund needs to return the money and that's totally. it. it has nothing to do with you your your metrics anything totally. that's such a good point too right like um <laughs> Are they interested in your category? I mean, one thing about beverage is beverage is its own mm -hmm. beast, right? And food and bev. And so, um, and there's, this is probably applicable for many, many things, but like if they've never invested in something somewhat similar to what you're doing, like you probably want to dig into that. That might not mean like they might be very interested in the category now, but you know, don't get caught again in like somebody's research project, like, right, won't waste too much time, right? Or an investor will be like, Yeah, we invest from pre seed to series B, and you're like, Oh, pre seed, they can they could invest in my uh, company, and then you realize, like, wait, how many pre seed deals have you done? And it's like, Well, we didn't do any last year, but we did one the year before, you know, and you realize you're like in the major minority of stage companies that they might actually write a check to. So that's an important thing too, is that they're, you know, explaining this broad range of how they invest. I mean, really kind of drill down a little more to see if it's actually like, what are the chances of them to be investing in your round? Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And someday this is my wish, but someday I hope that we start getting founders start getting more questions about, um, you know, culture, hmm. leadership, those sorts of questions too. Like, you know, how are you thinking about that? How are you thinking about building your team? Like what's the culture like on your team? I, I've been, I'm not surprised, but like those, those um, questions that I, I just don't ever hear. And that's always surprising to me. 
Yeah, you're right. I mean, because that's really a, a signal of longevity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies can look insanely well on paper, but they have a very bad, you know, they really suck at um, inclusivity, <laughs> you know, um, or and a lot of other things that could be on the leadership team um, or just on cultural in general. So those are things that are, you know, I think signals of longevity that a lot of investors overlook because they're looking at numbers all day. Not all of them are, but, you know, I think it's a trend. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. What kind of questions do you wish they were asking around culture? The first question would just be like, how do you define the culture of your internal company? Right. I think the second question is, how do you think, how do you think about building out your own leadership team, what that should look like and what the culture of that should be? Um, That's a good, I think test two of, you know, the founder's ability, I think also to get out of their, their own way. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's important as you're growing to like recognizing that you're not going to be the expert at everything and you need to bring talented people around you. And then I think the third thing is like, there has to be more conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, how are you thinking about that? Um, and so you know, and there's probably, there's a hundred more, <laughs> but as a start, I think those are important. Um, and I think they're especially important in our Sunwink, I guess I can speak to Sunwink. Like I think Sunwink finds them really important because we are in the wellness space, right? We're consumer focused. Um, we use amazing ingredients and tell the stories of lots of different people and you know, we have a, we're really proud of our external messaging and our vision, but like all that starts at home. Right. So we need to, we think we need to continue to challenge ourselves about our internal culture. Like what questions are we asking ourselves about, um, you know, diversity and inclusion about, um, power supporting leaders, um, Uh, you know, all those, all those kinds of things. Um, And it's a practice and we need to be engaging in it constantly. So tell us about one of your most challenging moments in building your business and how did you overcome it? Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I think, I mean, one low moment we talked about, like it, despite the fact that in 2018, we had this whole product market fit year where we were testing, it's pretty hard when you're, you got this product you poured your soul into and someone's spitting it out in your face. Like, yeah, that's a little tough. Yeah. It's discouraging. (laughs) You're like, Oh my God, what have I done with my life? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, you know, but I think another moment is, um, physical products are really hard to manufacture. It's not talked about as much, but in the beginning, a lot of times what I talked to early, early stage founders about is like an operational issue. They're having, having a manufacturing issue. Um, a lot of times to produce a beverage or a product, the minimum uh, quantities are really, really high. You're walking into old manufacturing plants, probably with no experts on your team, trying to negotiate with people that have been in manufacturing for years and years, you're speaking a lot of times different languages. Um, and you have this great vision of what you want to accomplish as a brand. And like that often is at odds. So I'll give you a specific low point. 
to drive trial and like to create this feeling of joy and, um, you know, cheerfulness, we created bottles that were blue, which was really weird. Uh, we got a lot of feedback in the beginning that that was a really stupid decision, but it's ended really? up. Yeah. Cause it's so different, right? Like every time you do something that is, that different. is people different. People are like, Whoa, what are you yeah, doing? Like, we have, we have wonderful, very smart advisors that are, you know, um, in the food space, but they were like, you know, it's a natural product and it's really important in natural products that the consumer can see the liquid. So they what? know it's natural. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. I thought it was going to be like, yeah, make sure it's in like a cardboard container, you know, like really <laughs> granola style. Uh, <laughs> well, the other, I mean, the other thing is, um, like kind of design 101, people will tell you blue is not an appetizing color. Like it actually suppresses your appetite. Really? So oh, yeah, it doesn't, isn't red like the color that's supposed to make you hungry. That's why McDonald's. Yeah, that's like why McDonald's red, yeah. red, yellow, orange. So, so we, we bucked a lot of convention. Um, but we also, anytime, anytime you try to do something either in like how your product's made or the packaging that's different, it's usually just a whole headache in supply chain. So we used to paint the bottles um, with this powder coating and it really didn't work without going too heavy into the details. It really didn't work once it got to the manufacturing plants. And we had this one run, this was a really, really low point, um, where the bottles just like, they started exploding and it was the turmeric flavor like on the manufacturing line on the manufacturing line it oh was boy. the turmeric flavor so the turmeric liquid was exploding and then dyeing the bottles that weren't exploding right and if you mix orange with this blue it kind of becomes this mermaid green um so the the bottles that were okay and that were saved were totally unusable anyways one cuz bottles were exploding and two because they had been dyed green and this was like I, I want to say it was like a month out from when I was going to get married. Um, and, and I think it was just this moment. I was, I was actually not there for the run. It was one of the first runs that I hadn't been present for. Like I was, I was at home. I was trying to do something to like get ready for the, the wedding. And I just had this feeling like personally, like my life is never my own anymore. I don't even have time to get married. And like everything I'm doing is literally breaking yeah. <laughs> into a thousand pieces. And these runs are expensive, right? You're watching like, yeah, I mean, that probably was like 20 to 30K, just it, literally explode and be died, <laughs> you know, this horrible, horrible, like aquamarine color, just the whole oh, thing man. was a disaster. Um, right. it, always, it always comes when you're having this personal moment um, like you're going through something or you're trying to live your life as well. Um, just a reminder, Hey, you're a startup founder. Let me just blow up, you know, 20 grand and set it on fire to remind you what game you're playing. Yeah. I mean, we had to, we had to do all these different things. Like we had to, we basically got kicked out of our co-packer after that. We had to go to a new co-packer and that's funny. Um, man, but actually really not funny. Cause that's, that's, it sucks. And it's annoying. Cause then you have to start from scratch. Yeah. And you realize why founders and like have trouble sleeping. Cause you like, you dream about this stuff. It's, it's, it's really anxiety provoking. I think people don't talk about that a lot. You know, mm -hmm. it's hard to, it's hard to live your normal life when like all the little things are seemingly blowing up and, you know, driving. Right. 
Right. And you don't just leave it at the office and be like, yeah, not my company, not my problem. This is your company. It is your problem. And you have to figure it out. Yeah. It's, it's your baby and you own it. Yep. So on that point of, you know, kind of dealing with anxiety and having to be so persistent all the time, what's a routine activity or thought process that helps keep you on track and staying positive and motivated each day? Totally. You have to rest. And I, it's the hardest thing. Like you're, I'm constantly in an argument with myself about this, but like you have got to give yourself moments where you step away. It, it like, you will be better for it as hard as it is. Um, and you know, this is another reason why a co-founder can be helpful because you can call each other up and you're like, if I don't take a day off, I'm going to go screaming into a wall. So can you cover for me tomorrow? Um, and you, you have some of that. And then, you know, you, you have to rest, you have to take that morning. You have to, maybe it's a Saturday afternoon if you can't take the week off and like, you have to not go into your email and know that as valuable as your company is, you also are valuable as a person and you like, you have to respect yourself. That's good advice. Taking a break um, is really important to be able to have a little bit of balance and realize that, you know, this is an everything of who you are. It's not your complete identity. There's more to you than this. And, um, you know, to kind of uh, get things kind of straight in your head in terms of like priorities or what really matters, I think, in life, because <laughs> you can get really tough, like down the rabbit hole. Um, and that can lead to some unhealthy thoughts. What do you think a lot of founders or aspiring entrepreneurs don't really realize before they get into the game? You know, like what's something you realize along the way? You're like, oh, I really had no idea that this is uh, what this entails. <laughs> or I wish I would have known had these skills. The sooner you can build um, informal and formal advisors around you, the the better you're going to be, like the better your sanity will be. Um and try to build out your advisory or like inform again, inform, like maybe you're giving them equity or maybe you're not, but like try to build that team out so that you have different people that are experts in different things, right? Like maybe somebody's a supply chain expert, maybe somebody is an HR expert, maybe somebody is, you know, they sold their company in food and beverage and have just been through all the things because there's just so many moments where. <laughs> You just want to Google it to know what the answer is. And there's no Google answer, right? And that's what your advisory team is, right? They're your, they're your Google, right? Like you text them and you're like, how do I do this? How did you think through this? And they're incredibly valuable. I like that you said informal and formal, because I think it's important to kind of have these kind of mentors that aren't involved as well, right? The people that aren't in equity, they didn't invest, they're not, you know, an official advisor, there's someone you can go to that you feel like you can't go to the other people for because maybe, you know, shit really hit the fan and you can't really just tell your investors right away, or you need to like figure it out first or however you want to approach it. But it's good to have other people kind of in your corner for you as a so founder. Fun. Yeah. Like not, not all your advisors have to be, yeah. Like they don't necessarily have to be the ones that have equity and they, they don't necessarily have to be investors. And like you said, like sometimes it will be easier if they're not either. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause you can talk to them about certain things that the others might, it might be a little different conversation <laughs> than you'd hoped to have. 
you know, if you could kind of change anything about your entrepreneurial journey, what would you have done differently? I'm still in it. <laughs> yeah, it's a long road. You're <laughs> on the very beginning. <laughs> basis. Yeah, it's it's a it's a journey. I mean, I think it's kind of what we talked about earlier. It's it's knowing your worth, and I I think there's some shyness in the beginning too about dreaming big and really, at least for me, this is my like envisioning like where you want to go um, and where you want this company to get to. And I, for me, it was personal. I was like, I think I didn't feel confident enough to realize like where I wanted to get it in the beginning. And so I wasn't always as honest with myself. And I think the the sooner you can be honest with yourself about what your end goal is with your company, like, what are you trying to build? Is this a lifestyle business for you? Like, will you run this for the rest of your life? Do you envision having other people take it over? Do you envision selling it? Like have that honest dialogue with yourself and keep checking in because the sooner you can do that, I think the smarter you will be about making decisions along the way. Yes, that will inform a lot of different decisions, right? Because if you want a lifestyle business that's completely different than, you know, fundraising and getting investors and trying to grow big, grow fast, um, have an exit so everybody can get something from their you know, investment in you. So it's it's a totally different strategy. So you're right, it is important to think about that pretty early on and be honest with that, because that will drive how fast you grow, how much you raise, etc. And from who? Yeah, I can't, I, I have a lot of conversations with people that have like stumbled, like they've started something, they're onto it. And then they've stumbled into like a little bit of capital, right? Like they're mm -hmm. like, and somebody I know wants to give me a hundred K and, and it's like, okay, that's great. That's right. awesome. Right. Like we all, well, that's the dream. Someone's coming Sounds to you. Sounds like a great friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, that's where you need to pause. And like, just cause it's there, do you want it? Is that part of what you're trying to do? And, and if you do want it, like, is that enough? Or do you need to go out and do a huge seed or pre-seed round based off of what your goals are? You know, like don't let, um, it, it seems to always come to head with fundraising, but like, don't let the fundraising come to you, like meet it with what your desired strategy is. The sooner you get comfortable with that, I think the easier it is. Yeah. I think if you wait for the fundraising to come to you, it's kind of like sitting at a bus stop where there's no bus that comes like no one's going to come to that there's no that's not how it works no nope. no one just pulls up to the bus stop and says hey lee you need money yep. let yep. me give you let me write it for you right now i'll write yep. you a check right now i mean no. <laughs> but it's funny i mean in the, in the early days it's it's like i do have that conversation a lot like hey someone wants to put in 25 i haven't even thought about taking money and it's like well you better go have that deep conversation with yourself and mm -hmm. figure out are you going to start the fundraising process? Because if you are, 25K is probably not going to be what you're looking for. Right, right. What is that going to get you? And when, what's the plan here? And yeah. the person giving the 25K, I mean, they're, I guess that's why they call them fools and friends, you know, <laughs> fools, family and friends. Um, yeah, because they're very, it's a very different type of person that you'd be raising from at the next round. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. Well, what, um, the last two questions. What is next for Sunwink? I know you guys have awesome powders that you just launched. So I assume some more powders, some more tonics. Yeah, yeah. We are um, really focused on powders. We have some pretty exciting uh, new launches coming up in really the next two months. Um, so keep keep an eye out for that. And So I'm right assuming you can't share those right now. I can't share them yet, but... Okay. Um, 
you know, we're, we're really focused on the success of the sparkling tonics and the powders and, you know, really, really building out this, this superfood and herb, um, and delicious and, and functional forms for people to use. And so you guys are in Whole Foods. I know you're in Air One. I saw you guys yeah. over in Air One. Um, what other retailers can we find you in? Um, another big retailer for us is Natural uh, Grocers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in like most ind- a lot of independents around the country. And we have a few more big retail launches also happening in a couple of months. Uh, Great. I, I can't share names yet, but but some big stuff coming. And of course, you can find us online too. Awesome. And what's some final advice you have for the listeners tuning in or aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, this is my, my cheesy, my quote that I kind of live by is this Annie Diller quote that's, um, it goes like, you know, how you live your days is of course, how you live your life. And I always tell people, you know, if you're thinking about doing it and you would look back, in, you know, a couple of years and regret not doing it, right? Like this is the thing that, you know, it's so important to you. It's going to be a defining moment in your life. Like you have to jump in, like you don't have another choice because if you don't do it, you'll regret it. Awesome. I like that quote. How you live your days is how you live your life. Yeah. It's also like, if you don't like how you lived your last month, like if you didn't take <laughs> enough rest for it, that's a reminder. That's how you're living your life too. So it's like, it's like a gut check quote. Yeah, exactly. It's an equation. It's kind of easy. You know, you keep, uh, you know, you keep living your life in a certain way every day and uh, it can go a couple directions, but uh, normally it's pointing in one. So if that's not where you want to go, you got to change it up. Yeah. I think that's right. Well, thank you again so much for the amazing Sunwink drinks. I've been enjoying them. They're awesome. And those listening definitely have to go out and check it out. It's delicious. It looks amazing. You can't miss it on the shelf. It's beautiful packaging um, and tastes great too. So thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.